I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 13. Goodbye, Stacy. Goodbye. Uh (laughs) Aw, you're going to get me started right away. I was so upset when this book came out. Um, I can still, you don't remember standing in the bookstore and you don't remember when we first saw it. I think actually, I think it was when Christy and the Snobs came out and it said in the back that the next book was not Christy Mm. and the Snobs. Claudia, the new girl. And it said the next book was Goodbye, Stacy, Goodbye. And then I remember holding it with the banner and just being like bereft. Like I couldn't believe that Stacy was leaving. No, yeah, I didn't feel that way. <laughs> wow. Harsh. Harsh. All right. Let's get into our one sentence summaries. Um, mine is Stacy is torn like the Natalie and Brulia song as she moves back to New York and has to leave the BSC behind. Okay. Mine is Stacy learns she is moving back to New York City and wrestles with her city mouse, country mouse persona. <laughs> Love that designation, that dichotomy. <laughs> Two grown adults let a bunch of 13-year-olds sell all of their belongings as they panic move to a new, bigger apartment on the Upper West Side. Yeah, I like the term panic move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, what, the McGills yeah. are really out of it here. <laughs> I, I agree. But um, wait, you guys, we should probably introduce the members of the podcast. I'm Annie Chikala, a freelance writer, a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. And I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. And I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual, and I like health food. If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, you can check out our prologue episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review or a rating. Helps people find us. Also, we love mail. Mail us virtually <laughs> stuck in stonybrook at gmail.com all right lots going on in this book where should we begin is me sure there are so many things going on in this book um i had like three or four different topics that i could have talked about um but i'm gonna zero zero in on moving and salesmanship um which oh, good. i think we covered those in our one sentence summaries how yeah. convenient <laughs> so and i think the sales stuff will dovetail nicely into um i'm sure you've got some lovely things about the capitalism um indoctrination that's happening in this book emily when we get to your your corner um, sell 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 sell, yeah. sell 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 money 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 rich yeah. rich 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 <laughs> okay let's start with moving um <laughs> neither i nor Anne moved as kids we both stayed in the same house from when we were born until we went to college which mm. i know is a pretty rare thing i think partly because we had older parents who were kind of done was moving at that point. Um, but I know you moved a, a bunch, Emily, um, both mm-hmm. like divorce related, but also just like your mom finding newer, cooler, better old houses to move into. Um, and your dad building newer, cooler, better new houses. Um, so yeah, my mom is such a Don. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Oh yeah. Your mom loves an old house. Yeah. The more haunted, the better. So I, you know, I think this is another one where um, Anna Martin did a really nice job portraying um, all the emotions that come with moving. And I I especially liked that Stacy was torn, um, as we talked about in our summaries. I think that was realistic. Like there are, you know, she is a city mouse. There are a lot of things she misses about New York, but of course she also is going to really miss the BSC. And so I think she did a really nice job showing her emotions go up and down. So basic plot of this book, Mr. McGill had been transferred to Stanford to start a new branch of his nameless company, right? We don't really find out what his company is. Um, Mm -hmm. So we could, maybe you have some guesses for that, Anne, of what Mr. McGill is up to. But the Stanford branch was struggling. Yeah, Hawken Sunbeam Toasters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, it doesn't say he works for Watson, though. So I think it has to be some other auxiliary uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> toasting product, but um, 
yeah, he, the Stanford branch is struggling. They're going to close it. And so they're transferring him back to New York. And they sort of say, I'm grateful that they're not making us move to Boston, which seems like a little bit extreme if they had already been at the New York office and doing well there. So they have to move back. No, that New York-Boston rivalry is real. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, it just seems extreme to me that they would have made him move to a whole new place instead of bringing him back to the office where he oh, was Oh, that like moving to Boston was even on the table at all. Right. Like what if it's a company that liked him? See, and, like, I read him saying that as a way to like make Stacy feel better about the move. So like yeah. well, lucky they did just didn't transfer us to Boston. Like what kind of fresh hell would that have been if we had to move <laughs> there? Like at least we get to go home, you know, like yeah. <laughs> not That's as a fair. realistic thing that could have happened. Gotcha. <laughs> but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, but I also I, I do love the phrase you used panic move because similar to like the artificial like wedding panic of Liz Thomas in Christie's Big Day, it's like why why does this has to happen in four weeks? Like it seems like if you're closing a whole branch of some large company in nineteen eighty eight, you would have a little bit of lead time. But maybe not. I don't know. Especially when there was no email or anything, right? I feel like things moved a little slower. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, they like sold their house. They like got a new place. I know. That's not realistic. Yeah. yeah. But I did really like the portrayal of Stacy being torn, but it, it led me to think about how kids react to moving in general, because obviously this is something that a lot of people have to do. Um, and there was a big um, study um, in JPSP, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. It's one of the most um, competitive psychology journals in 2010, looking at the impact of moves um, on people kind of longitudinally across the lifespan. So they interviewed a, a lot of people. I don't remember the end of the study. I'll post it. Um, but basically, if you move a ton as a kid, it tends to have a negative impact on your later overall well-being. Um, but this impact is significantly greater and actually only really persists for kids who are more introverted. So if you're more extroverted, it makes a lot of sense, right? If you're like... you know, open to meeting a lot of people and, you know, excited to interact with new people, moving is a little easier. And I think we can see that in Stacy, right? I think we'd say that Stacy's pretty high on extroversion and she um, gets excited to meet people and be around people. And so you can see how she adjusted nicely to Stony Brook and she's kind of, you know, she's a little worried about some of these kids that were mean to her with the diabetes back in the day, but otherwise she's pretty confident that she can adjust back to New York. So I thought it was neat that that was kind of in line with the research and, and also that Anna Martin was able to show all these different shades of Stacy's reactions. I have a question about that study. What, what measures determine well-being later on? Yes, I am happy to tell you. Negative associations between number of residential moves and well-being were observed among introverts, but not among extroverts. It was explained by the relative lack of close social relationships. Hmm. We found that introverts who had moved frequently as children were more likely to have died during the 10-year follow-up. Among extroverts, yeah, (laughs) it's just the abstract. Among extroverts, childhood residential mobility was unrelated to their mortality risk as adults. Okay, so it's like straight up like physical, (laughs) yeah, physiological well-being. Yeah, they're looking at some health outcomes. Let me tell you what exactly they were measuring. Yeah, so it was a, it was a large sample, over seven thousand adults. Wow. Yeah. Does it say cause of death? I guess I'm picturing all these introverts who moved a lot, and they're just, you know, they're staying at home because they don't know how to make new friends, and they're just like not exercising. They're eating a lot. <laughs> they this is they did a lot of different measures. So, um, uh, you know, it's mostly self self report obviously. Um, but then they are also, they just, they didn't look at cause of death, but they just put their social security number through the national death index to find out who had died at the follow-up. Um, but they self-reported on, uh, life satisfaction, mm-hmm. psychological well-being. Like, do I agree or strongly agree with items? Like I like most parts of my personality. When I look at the story of my life, I'm pleased with how things have turned out. Um, versus like, for me, life has been a continuous process of learning, change, and growth, or the demands of my life often get me down. Um, and then they measured positive affect. And then um, big five, who we've talked about before. So extroversion, mm, neuroticism, openness, um, 
agreeableness and conscientiousness, and then the number of residential moves during childhood, the mean of which was just 1.98, but the standard Mm. deviation was 3.18. So there would be people, the range was zero to 60. Wow. So some people were like me and Anna never moved and some people moved 60 times. That's wild. That's so many times. Yeah. That's interesting. And then they also measured social relationships. So how often... Do you see friends? How many people How many people do you feel like understand you? How often do you feel criticized by people close to you? I could call mm-hmm. on a neighbor for help if I needed it. So they used all you these know, kinds of measures. And then they controlled for education, gender, and the um, different um, levels, the different uh, axes of the big five. Interesting. Yeah. You know I was thinking? Something that was really funny to me about how the girls talk about the move is that Stacy's dad is sent to open a branch in Stamford. Mm-hmm. So presumably Stony Brook is somewhere near Stamford. Mm-hmm. Stamford is an hour I know. away from the Upper West Side, mm-hmm. if not less. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, it's so far. We couldn't possibly live in Connecticut and have dad commute to the city. Like, we're never yeah. going to see each other. Blah. It's like right. so dramatic. I <laughs> and I also was like, why wouldn't they do that just for a year? If Stacy, yeah, like, yeah. and I feel like a lot of parents today would for one year, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's like, well, we want to be back in Manhattan for high school and we don't want to do this. Dad doesn't want to do this commute forever, but we have just uprooted you and you have this life here and like, we'll make it work. Like yeah. that to me, and it's not even a full year, right? It's like October. So mm-hmm. it's like seven or eight months. Yeah. So funny. I remember. So when we moved, we lived in a town called Three Rivers before we moved to Visalia when my parents split up and we had like childhood friends in Three Rivers and then like had to make new friends in Visalia. And it was always this thing where like our friends in Three Rivers felt so far away. We just like never got to see them, but it was like, they were our, our long-term like childhood friends. And then people in school were like the new friends. And there was always like a balance between like making sure that you see them when you go to dad's house. Cause you won't see them anytime otherwise. And it was felt at the time it was like very dramatic stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I think we will, we will see some of that coming up in the series. Um, when the BSC gets to go visit Stacy, which I'm very, very excited to discuss. Um, I know there's that one, is one of the books I remember most vividly. Yeah. Probably yeah. unsurprisingly. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. For all of us, all of us California kids who got obsessed with New York City and decided to move there someday in adulthood. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought the moving stuff was handled pretty well. And I just thought some of that data was fairly interesting. Um, Yeah. I I think of the fact that the introversion extroversion scale is the most like salient variable is super interesting. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have guessed that, but it makes sense to me kind of intuitively. Mm -hmm. The hardest part about quarantine for me has been I've only made two new friends in like six months. That Mm -hmm. sucks. Wait, what? You made friends during quarantine? (laughs) Yeah, my neighbors. (laughs) The only people I see. (laughs) We share a building and we were never friends before. So, uh, podcast listeners, the really, uh, you know, Anne is sort of a very classic ex- introvert. And the look on her face when Emily said she only made two new friends was this combination of like, A, how do you make friends during quarantine? And B, you made two friends in six months. It was. I think I'm averaging like two friends every decade or so in my life, I think. No, yeah. but I think that study is really interesting because I realize that for me, most of my like closest friendships have been made through work environments. So that means like a lot of exposure to these people on a mm-hmm. daily basis. So for me, it takes a lot of like, there's a big lead up to, for me to like actually create a friendship with someone. So mm-hmm. I would say that almost all of my friends have been made through that sort of situation, whether it's school Mm -hmm. or it's work. I've never just made a friend that's like I've met at a party Mm -hmm. and just hit it off and decided to like, you know, meet up for drinks, you know, or something like that is like never happened to me. Yeah. Good thing. Good thing. You didn't move a lot as a child. Yeah. I would be dead right now. Probably. (laughs) Ooh, dark, dark turn. (laughs) hilarious yeah no I just make friends with my neighbors on the street 
I don't know. But like we, <laughs> like me. we talked about last time with Esme's high, high threshold for people who she gives any fucks at all about. Mine's pretty low. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm an extrovert who never moved. And so I collected all of these people and that's, you know, there's only so much, there's only so much of me to go around. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, get, get blood pretty dry. You guys, I'm a psychologist. I got, I have to give a lot of myself at work too. Anyway. Yeah. That's, it's a very high threshold. Uh, and, and it doesn't have a high threshold. She just doesn't, doesn't well this is back to laziness too right like she doesn't want to put in the work unless she knows that there's a good good chance that it might be yeah. useful yeah <laughs> this is true <laughs> so funny all right so other psychology thing that i'm sure i'll talk a lot more about in future episodes so i don't know that we need to talk about it a ton today but jeff is getting worse Right. So this is still happening. Jeff is really, I think, clinically depressed at this point about being in Stony Brook. And um, there's one chapter in the middle where Marianne babysits for him and finds a letter that he's written to Mr. Schaefer about how he wants to move back to California. And um, Marianne starts with sort of trying to convince him and saying, like, but families should be together and you should be here with your mom. But then she shifts gears into validation and she just sort of listens to Jeff and repeats how he's feeling and what he's feeling. And you see Jeff really open up and talk with her about it in a way that he hasn't been able to because Don and Sharon, like, have too big of stakes in it, so to speak, you know, they're not able to just kind of listen to his point of view. And I thought it was a really nice example of how emotional validation works, but I know we'll see it in future books. So I just wanted to like put a pin in it. Um, and then we can talk about some other stuff. Cause there was a lot happening in this book. That was a really good point. That's me. <laughs> that's, that's, not that's not validation. That's praise. We'll talk about yeah, it. Okay. <laughs> Tell us more about, the other things that you noticed, Esme? Thanks, Emily. Um, I <laughs> was thinking a lot about there's this um, point where they're planning this big yard sale. And Stacy says sp- specifically that Christy l- really loves selling things and making money. And she's a smart businesswoman. Um, and this is on page 12. And uh, I'm a Girl Scout troop leader. This hasn't come up on the podcast before, but so I work with a lot of kids who love selling things um, (laughs) when cookie season comes around. Um, So, and there's a lot of specific lessons and kind of positive, um, I guess just lessons, positive things that girls get out of selling cookies. Um, And I always really loved to sell things when I was a kid, but I have a suspicion that you two probably did not love to sell things. Absolutely not. Yeah. (laughs) Nope. Never did it. So what did you dislike about it? I mean, you you were asked to do it at some point, right? For like volleyball or school or... Choir. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. And I think I've always been a Marxist, so that was part of it. (laughs) I mean, sure, sure. I just didn't. I just didn't like the interaction of having to ask for something. Mm-hmm. I just like don't see I felt, why I should yeah. have to sell my labor power so that somebody else <laughs> can get money. You know, <laughs> wasn't it so that your choir could like go on a trip? Why can't the school district pay for that? It's a public good. <laughs> sending sending you to Washington D.C. or whatever. I didn't go to D.C. Okay, sorry. Where did you go? Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> It's a a public good, folks. You heard it here first. Sending a a high school singing Emily to Disneyland is a public good. Yeah, I mean, but let's think about the real, what's really at work there. You have kids, like, sell things so that they can then pour money back into the Disney franchise. It's just, you know, capitalism times capitalism equals more capitalism. Yeah. Did you, did you not have fun where you, did you just cry when you were at Disneyland because of the, because of your Marxist values at 15? I had a terrible time. (laughs) So anyway, uh, what do you guys think makes, uh, kids interested and just people in general like sales? Like what, what sort of personality attributes do you think are related to that and why do people like it? I mean, I would think for a child that money is like, kind of a novel thing because you don't as a kid you never make your own money so Mm -hmm. I think it's exciting to like 
be like, oh, I'm, I'm like, you have some sort of power over like the money you're going to get that isn't given to you by your parents or mm-hmm. it isn't an allowance. It's something you're doing on your own. Yeah, there's definitely a certain amount of empowerment there of like, I I earned this, right? Mm-hmm. What else do you think? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Emily doesn't like to play my psychology guessing games. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't like Why? to be wrong. Everybody is wrong sometimes. It's part of part of life. All right. Well, I you know, I really related to Christy and I was trying to think back part you know, partly looking at the literature, but partly also thinking about my own experience and also the girls that I work with in Girl Scouts. And I think, you know, it, it is partly what you're saying, Anne, is kind of like that accomplishment of doing something and then having money that you can spend on things. But I think it's also this, um, the, the convincing part is interesting, right? The, like, how do I part this other person from their funds? Like, how do I show them that this good or service that I have is worth their time and money? Um, and how do I persuade, right? So, um, persuasion is a really big area of the social psychology literature that actually we use a lot in therapy as well. Um, cause most people that go to therapy are ambivalent about change. You know, you, you want to, you want to do something different with your life. Maybe you want to feel less depressed, but it seems really hard to get out of the house more often. And so usually you have to kind of work on building commitment with people that you're working with on clinical concerns so that they'll actually stick with the treatment because therapy is hard, right? It's a lot of work. Um, And so there's a whole literature on sales techniques that is actually applied in a lot of other areas of life. And I sort of found myself wondering how much Christy uses these both in the yard sale, but also in in getting new clients and things like that. Um, There's a technique called foot in the door, which you guys have probably heard about, um, which is, you know, asking for a small thing and then increasing asking for more. So at a garage sale, you may be, you know, selling one of Dawn's baby spider plants, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. (laughs) Um, But then you see if you can get people to throw in something else or buy a brownie along with it or whatever it is. Um, But have either of you heard of door in the face? Mm Mm-mm. So door in the face is um, something that I use a lot in therapy and that's been studied a lot, which is you ask for something big in the hopes of getting something small. And so this is Mm. like if, uh, you know, Save the Children calls you at home to ask for a donation, the first thing they might ask is, would you be willing to donate your car to Save the Children? And you're like, "Uh, no, I need my car. In the before times, I used it to get to work. And they say, okay, how about $5 a month? And it turns out you're much more likely to give the $5 a month if you've already refused a larger take. So I found myself just kind of thinking about the ways in which those things would appeal both to Stacy, as we talked a lot about her kind of psychological know-how in previous episodes, but also specifically to Christy as, as she has this kind of entrepreneurial businesswoman identity that's getting sort of bolstered throughout the series. Hmm. I feel like that tactic works in friendships too. Be like, do you want to spend the next three days together doing a million things? And like, no, let's just go see a movie, you know? I feel like I, I would much rather use that tactic than the other one, than the foot in the door. Mm-hmm. I like door in the mm-hmm. face. Yeah. <laughs> I like that it's called door in the face also. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Well, there's a meta-analysis. It turns out they work pretty equally well. But you would uh, maybe, I think other people, I am not surprised because this is like classic social psychology to me that there were like dozens of studies over the years looking at which one is better um, to like help salespeople out in the field. Mm -hmm. And then the meta-analysis says they're the same. They work about the same. So just use whichever one you like better. Yeah. Well, the, the, Foot in the door is definitely used a lot in retail, mm-hmm. like gift with purchase yeah. type of thing. It's like mm-hmm. you get this little thing for free if you buy this bigger thing, right? Yeah. And it, it really works. Like people, yeah. people fall for it. Yeah, absolutely. So keep it in mind. Look out. You can look, look for door in the face and foot in the door in your life. Um, and then I, I also write us at <laughs> stuck in Sony work at gmail.com. If this has happened to you. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have a new testimonial face door in the face section. <laughs> yes. Well, and I also just think, I think they did a nice job. You know, I, I think Christy's personality does match someone who would be into sales and making money. 
right? I like I think that that fits with us not just because the club was her great idea, but um, you know, conscientiousness and extroversion back to the real big five are the ones that are sort of most positively associated with being a good salesperson. So there's a bunch of data. There's a whole field of psychology called industrial organizational psychology that's basically using psychology to make more money. You would love it, Emily. It's totally up your alley. Um, and, and agreeableness and conscientiousness and extroversion are the things that seem to be most closely related to good sales. And I think Christie's kind of high on all of those things and really works to, you have to have empathy. You have to understand other people and kind of play close, pay close attention to people's needs. It's how she's able to think of things like kid kits, right? Um, but you also have to be willing to put yourself out there and take risks and, and, you know, deal with rejection. And I think, you know, those latter things are things that, well, whereas like a Marianne has really high empathy, she's not going to take those risks, right? She's not going to put herself out there in that way. Yeah, Emily. No, I was just saying, same. Yeah. <laughs> She's raising her hand. Hi. Confirmed. So, yes. <laughs> so given all of this lovely capitalism and salespersonship that's going on in this book, and what jumped out to you? I mean, I did a lot of eye rolling at the coupling of intelligence and capacity for money making throughout the book. It happens in the passage you noted at the beginning, but it happens again later when Stacy's talking again about Christy, but also in one of those two contexts, she um, talks about Elizabeth Brewer as a kind of source of this, of, of or like a, as a partial explanation for why Christy has developed this kind of savviness for, for business. But there, I mean, just the recurrence of the importance of money-making. And there's even a passage early on when she's not talking about Christy at all. I think she's talking about um, like, in, in a parenthetical, something her father says about, you know, how you can tell a good business person in the parenthetical is like, and of course, it has to be a money making solution to a problem, not just a solution to a problem. And so mm-hmm. the idea that the kinds of solutions that are valuable to problem solving, and like granted, she does couch this in the business context, but there is a little bit of a slippage, right? The idea that like, the best solution to a problem is a solution that makes money is like a very capitalistic kind of um, logic. And it's, you know, it taps into a bit of some of the stuff we were talking about last time about the pervasiveness of the work ethic and the, the like demand to work hard and work long. But here we're seeing like a slightly different version of that, that it's not, it's not even about like how much you work or how hard you work. It's about like how, how productive you are in the context of how much money, how much money you can make or like how much surplus value you can extract in the, in the Marxist terminology. But I thought that that was kind of an, I just thought that was like, really, we were really beat over the head with that in this book. (laughs) Yeah. The outcome is specifically how much money. And in fact, the way the babysitters are able to show their love for Stacy is through how much money they make in this big yard sale. So they can throw her this amazing party with all of these new toys and presents for the kids. It's all just kind of materialism, capitalism, materialism in this cycle, because without money, they couldn't possibly show her how loved she was. Yeah. And they're stressed about it, right? They're like, how will we ever show well, how will we ever throw her a party with how little money that we have? And I'm like, mm-hmm. are, that should not be something you're thinking about or like stressing about to that degree at 13. And I think that like, it's just completely taken for granted in this book. Like sometimes we see there's some commentary on some of the stuff that Anna Martin is giving us. But in this one, I think it's just like, she's not even thinking about how pervasive the, the recurring, you know, emphasis placed on money making is it's not being interrogated at all. It's just like a completely taken for granted part of the universe here in mm-hmm. Stony Brook, Connecticut. <laughs> yeah, for um, sure. I, I found the passage you were saying about uh, the parenthetical about Elizabeth. It's on page 107. And yeah. after Christy talks about how much she loves selling, uh, Stacy says, Christy doesn't need much money thanks to wealthy Watson. She simply has a talent for making money and she likes being a businesswoman. I guess she takes after her mom. Christy's mom is really smart. Yeah. Um, and that's several times where smart and capacity for money making are, are clustered together throughout this book. Um, there was also one other comment Stacy makes that I found revealing in, a, in the context of discussions around class, which is when she goes to the party, Christy tells her where 
you know, wear dirty old clothes. And she calls her beforehand and is like, what are you wearing? And Stacy tells her and she says, not dirty enough. Wear your old jeans and your gray sweatshirt. And Stacy makes some comment about how I felt like I was going to, you know, do some yard work or paint or something that like, this is garb that's only appropriate for blue collar labor. And like how, how sort of, you know, she says it as a kind of offhanded comment, but it's clear that like, that's distasteful to her, right? Like she doesn't like to dress like that. And she's like, this is, these are the, this is the outfit that's appropriate for (laughs) this, you know, X, Y, Z kinds of work and stuff. Um, I thought that was kind of funny. Her her sort of dig at working class garb. Yeah. (laughs) She's going to have fun back on the Upper West Side. (laughs) Well, and that compared with her, like, the moment when her parents tell her that she's moving, her first reaction is kind of panic. And then her parents start reminding her, like, all the things she loves about New York. And by the time she jumps into the conversation to, like, participate in generating some excitement... What her her contribution to that conversation is just a, a laundry list of all the brands and brand store brand name yeah. stores she can shop at again. <laughs> let me let me let me say the story she says. She says Bloomingdale, Saks, Tiffany's, Benetton, Laura Ashley, Ann Taylor, Bonwit Teller, Bergdorf Goodman's, and B Altman's. Okay, so these are all like very high end department stores. I'm not sure why Ann Taylor is in there. Because I know, it's like way before Lewin Gray, which is the only part of Ann Taylor that would make sense. Yeah, but Ann Taylor, <laughs> I don't know, maybe it was different in the late 80s, but it's like it was made for like career women. It's like kind of like business casual, a lot of like suit sets and slacks and button up shirts and I stuff. I feel like if anything, it was more like that in the late 80s. Yeah. Like that Lots was like shoulder pads. five shoulder pad suit time. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. I'm like, maybe I get Benetton and Laura Ashley, but the rest are like, I'm like, do you really, sh-? I mean, if she shops at Bergdorf's, that means her family has a lot of money. Buku bucks. Yeah. I mean, you looked up their new address. Yeah. It's like <laughs> literally like 10 feet away Central- from Central Park. Yeah, it's like Central Park West and 81st, right? Yeah, basically, yeah. There was a couple a couple other things that I noticed in this book. One is just a short, a quick aside. We finally see Mr. Marshall doing some child care, <laughs> some, some care work. He uh, takes his kids to the yard sale. Presu- I mean, no mention of Mrs. Marshall, so presumably he's doing it solo. Um, and he, you know, lets them buy a couple things. Actually... Doesn't he buy them the, a ping pong table? Yes, he does. He buys the big <laughs> McGill's ping pong table. Thank you, Daddy. Kind of, yeah, because it's kind of funny because it's like, on the one hand, it's nice that he appears, but the single singular context in which he appears is like buying something for his children. So very stereotypical sort of provider stuff, not necessarily caregiver stuff. But I was um, pleasantly surprised to see him at all. As, a, as a, not a ghost in the background of a baby shower, uh, <laughs> like before. <laughs> Hang, hanging out with Mr. Newton somewhere off to the side. Yeah. Okay. And then my last thing about this book is I, I got really sidetracked in the Pike family babysitting chapter where the Pike children, uh, spearheaded by Jordan, have created this game called Secret Agents, where they're spying on their new foreign neighbors. So there are a lot of things about this that were very interesting to me. This book came out in 1988. So we're still, it's like before the Berlin Wall falls, we're still like deeply in kind of Reagan era, Cold War, um, American dream stuff. But what was really fascinating to me was on the one hand, the kind of uh, um, intrinsic reflexive suspicion of anything foreign and it's like very clear their neighbors are french we will not read the the dialogue with with offensive accents like we have been doing (laughs) okay and you do it (laughs) okay hang on let me find um let's see it's chapter seven yeah i'm trying to find a good line so but these are this is like the pie kids impersonating the the neighbors so here is Oh, they have long, funny last name, and they speak with accents. They sound like this. Oh, mis do need you. Thank you so much for your hospitality. 
Okay, so very clearly French to me. (laughs) And then eventually, by the end of the chapter, Claudia is like, I mean, it's very obviously a French accent. But there's still this kind of... um, the presumption that the Pike kids have and the reason why they're spying on their neighbors is because they think they're spies. So there, there's this like really clear kind of Cold War era suspicion of anything foreign. Um, and that that's the suspicion is that like, and the spy dynamic of it particularly taps into a bunch of Cold War fears about, you know, the other, and it's like super racialized and there's a really complicated history there. But what else, the other thing that happens in this chapter um, that was fascinating to me is that Mallory is like, this is an invasion of privacy. So there's a juxtaposition of discourse around privacy concerns, which were like the idea that your pri- that your home is a private sphere that is insulated from um, over governmental overreach was like the backbone of kind of American individualism and like pro- property, the individual as a as a property owner and the kind of um, relevant you know, like node of political concern. And that was like how the U S generated so much concern around socialism and around, um, Mm. the USSR. And so there's this, like at the same time as the U S government was deeply, deeply involved in its own tactics of espionage, both abroad and at home, right. There's a ton of evidence about how the FBI spied on civil rights activists and women's movements and all this kind of stuff. So there, there was simultaneously uh, in this period of history, like a huge kind of public discourse around like privacy and property are what make us American. Like this is the American dream. Your home is your safe space. You can kill someone who, you know, trespasses and the kids are talking about privacy and trespassing and all these things. And yet it it simultaneously existed with um, a, a like, widely shared kind of fear of the other of of the foreign and the the, like threat of espionage is like always around and then there was the the sort of specter of like what the u.s government was actually doing at the time was transgressing a bunch of all of these conversations so i thought it was really funny that like the the backdrop of the cold war like sort of shown through in this really kind of funny vignette about like kids coming up with this game and like dealing with their foreign neighbors but it it's funny, but at the same time, there's kind of like a darkness to it mm-hmm. that I thought was really interesting. Um, and Claudia and Mallory's, you know, one of the, this, this book is also basically and not leading us to the introduction of Mallory to the club. And so you see Claudia kind of observing Mallory's management of the situation and keeps calling to attention her, like, I forget what the word, it's like practical or something. What, what's the word she mm-hmm. keeps using to describe Mallory? So like level-headed or like... She, yeah, she says level-headed and one other thing that she keeps saying. Um, but I thought that was kind of interesting to have her level-headedness be like managing like a kid version of basically like Cold War hysteria. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, this is how, this is why Mallory is so practical. Yeah. yeah. Claudia <laughs> grinned. Mallory had saved the day. She had prevented hysteria. Thank goodness she was so practical. Right? How so fascinating practical. is that? I that was just it totally is. wild to me. I thought it was really, really interesting. Yeah. Oh man, those pikes! Mm-hmm. Who this are is, I mean, they? This is a great episode. The whoops! Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're gonna have to get yeah. a whoops theme song going pretty good pretty soon. We'll figure that and out. Gary, <laughs> yeah, he's working on it. He's working on it. Excellent. Uh, oh man. Okay, and yeah, then we got really had... sidetracked by that chapter. Okay. <laughs> that was. I mean. I'm impressed by that, your perspective on that, Emily. Yeah, Yeah, that was very good. That was very classic. That was the classic Emily read. I don't think Anne or I saw that in that chapter. Truth be told, I kind of skimmed over that chapter. (laughs) Well, of course, it's babysitting. (laughs) If it hadn't have been about Cold War hysteria against socialism, (laughs) I would have skipped over it as well. (laughs) I like the babysitting. Okay. Anne, what, what do you have for us? So there's... A few things. Um, So first, let's talk about, you know, I want to introduce this new idea of myth busting these California stereotypes that Anna Martin is like somehow pulling out of a hat randomly. So (laughs) in this a lot in in this this book. Yeah. In this book, Don says, we don't have yard sales in California. What? False. What is that? I don't understand where that came from. Yeah, like, so for our listeners out there who are not not from California, 
and like have never been here, you may think this is a state where we don't eat ice cream. We eat cottage cheese with pineapples and there are no yard sales. So, however, all these, this is all false. <laughs> yeah. Um, so many yard sales where we grew up. And I also don't, I mean, I don't think that like, why wouldn't there be yard sales? None of us is from Southern California originally. And so I know it's the 80s. Like, there are definitely yard sales in Southern California now. Why would there not be in the 80s? This, the weather's always good. Why would you not have yard sales? Well, and the funny thing to me is that, right, like, California is much more suburban than Connecticut. Connecticut is rural. And so, like, mm-hmm. we, we keep talking about Stony Brook as kind of suburban Connecticut, but suburban Connecticut is way more sparsely populated than most of most towns in California. Like, where our towns were... They're younger. They were planned. They're they're mm-hmm. like neat city blocks with tiny parcels, and everyone's yard is right next to one another, and everyone has a sidewalk, right? Like these are like sloping, you know, hilly lots that not don't necessarily yeah. have have neighborhoods like that. Yeah, these are, we are city planned for yard sales, is what you're telling me. Exactly. That yeah. <laughs> we are city planned for yard sales because of capitalism. Yep. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> but I just wonder why would Anne, why would she choose to even make that statement? I don't like, know. It's just another way of othering Dawn. I feel like there's just yeah. throughout there's ways to kind of highlight what an individual she is and that that's related to being from California. But yeah, that that was a very random one. I don't know why that wouldn't have. Yeah, I can't I can't defend it. Yeah. So that was strange. And then and um, another thing that is yard sale related is the is the quote unquote poem that Claudia wrote. And I'd like to point out that the first line is need a toaster. <laughs> Whoa. Right? I yeah. mean coincidence? I think no. not. You know there were like ten toasters at that yard sale, and they all came from like Watson's basement. His overflow yeah. of sunbeams. Old models, you know, from like early 80s, prototypes, samples. Yeah. yeah. All this, explains, this explains the mysterious absence of toasters in Christie and the Snobs. Yes. Mm. Oh. How, wait, how? They were at the McGill's house, obviously. But that now was two being books sold. ago. What? But so? what? <laughs> I'm sorry. Are you it's saying good. that Watson gave the McGill's a bunch of toasters just for that their now, family. Yes, and that now they are moving to New York City, and they no longer have the space to store all these toasters, so they are being sold at the yard sale. Okay, we've we've gone a little bit off the rails. I feel like with the Sunbeam conspiracy theory. But Disagree. You guys, you guys are fully on board. Uh, before we leave California MythBusters land, I did want to address Dawn selling her baby spider plants at the yard sale, and it just what did you guys think about that? It cracked me up. Yeah. I mean, As I, look at I really my relate to this. Plant on the shelf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I remember we had like three spider plants growing up. So yeah. I exactly understand what she's getting at. Yeah. Everybody had spider plants. I think, you know, uh, Plants are in again now, and they're very much sort of a a millennial thing, as Emily said at the top of the podcast. And, you know, they were very much still like the 70s were still happening in the mid to late 80s in California in a lot of ways. And I think every house did have multiple spider plants. So Mm -hmm. that seems like a a, like an accurate California stereotype to me. And it's compounded by. The other thing that Dawn does in this book, which is where in one of their club meetings or hangout sessions, she's just like chilling in a headstand (laughs) upside down. Yes. I was like, oh, Dawn does yoga. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Also pretty accurate. I feel like we can't, we can't throw shade at that. That seems about right for Dawn and for California. (laughs) Those are definitely stereotypes that have a basis in reality. (laughs) Right. Unlike the just completely inaccurate assertion that there are no yard sales in California. <laughs> that's just, that's just insane. That's outrageous. Outrageous. So the thing I really want to talk about is in the first page of this book, Stacy goes on about her, this fantasy she has about eating all this candy and sugar because as we know, she's diabetic. 
Um, and she goes on about, you know, all these different kinds of candy she's fantasizing about. And she says, um, I've had diabetes for almost two years now. That's close to 24 months without white chocolate and Rupert barrels and Twinkies and ring dings and noodles. So white chocolate <sighs> and root barrels we've discussed. You don't understand why Stacy would choose out of all different, all of these candies in the world, white chocolate. So Anne is, you're particularly offended by the white chocolate. It's just not chocolate. Sure. And it's also it, not it very good. It's not good. It kind of has a, it, I feel like it tastes plasticky. Like it's super sweet. It's very, very sweet. Um, uh, agree. I think it's less pa- plasticky than a Twizzler. Yeah, but yeah, that's why different. red vines are better than Twizzlers. Right, but like in the yeah. in the pantheon of of candies that taste like plastic, I would put white chocolate much lower than Twizzlers. Fire. <laughs> Long pause. <laughs> Thinking. <laughs> Don't edit that out, Emily. Okay. So, but then. Last night, we were all texting about root beer barrels because the first time this was brought up, I was like, I I like root beer barrels. And both of you had a very negative reaction to them. Well, I've never had one. I didn't know it was a thing. And okay. I was trying to imagine like a gummy candy that tasted like a soda and I didn't well, like okay. it. It's, it's hard candy? It. It's hard oh, candy. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Even uh, change your mind. Exactly. No. Yeah, it makes it worse. Yeah, it's a well and I I I labeled it a fringe candy. I think it's a fringe candy. I don't like mm. I don't think it's something that anybody is like, yes, root beer barrel. Like if you get it, you might eat it. But it's nobody's nobody's gonna choose it. So this led me into a deep dive of root beer barrels, because I thought this, I feel like Ruber Brows could be a very specific thing where there's some like, it has some cult following and there's some like root bear barrel association where people like talk about all the different kinds of root bear barrels and which one is the best one. But I did not find that. So <laughs> that doesn't exist. However, I, yeah, I did find out that the, in, like, the inventor of the root bear barrel was the same person who basically quote-unquote, invented or really commercialized um, root beer. And his name was Charles Heyer. And he um, he came up with the root beer barrel in the early 1900s, which was kind of like as like a little period to root beer. Mm-hmm. So, and then I got into Charles Heyer's history and how he came up with root beer, and I thought it was actually pretty interesting and kind of ties back to some topics we've talked about in prior episodes. So I'm just going to do a a summary of the history of root beer. Okay. Um, Okay. So Charles Hires was the quote unquote inventor. He was born in 1851 in Pennsylvania. His dad was a farmer, but he did not want to be a farmer. He wanted to like become more things. (laughs) Yeah. Sell things. Exactly. American dream. Don't want to just be a farmer. Yeah. yeah, he wanted to like go out there and explore the world. And, like this one article I read said he wanted to be like an adventurer, whatever that meant. Oh, like but he a went on, conqueror. Yeah. Yeah. But he went on to become a pharmacist. Um, and he was hired as a pharmacist in 1867. And to put some context into this, this is like post-Civil War. And at the time, there was a really huge interest in any products that provided any medicinal benefit. because, oh, like, yeah. Everyone had like dysentery and like dino diarrhea and pneumonia, typhoid, all these things. So he was actually, because I think of that time period, he was very successful. He opened his own pharmacy and kind of like came up with his own concoctions. And he saved, this article said, $5,000. As me, you can do the math on this while I keep on talking. <laughs> so this isn't, so that would be what like, in, say, 1867. Okay. Okay. So then in 1875, he got married um, and his honeymoon was on like a New Jersey farm. And they like stayed at some like in there and he was served this tea, which was a root tea. And it was made up of all these wild roots and berries. And he was like, as a pharmacist, he was like really intrigued by it. 
And he kind of like persuaded the hostess to give him the recipe. And it turns out the recipe was actually something that was a beverage that Native Americans made for like many years. And it included sarsaparilla, mm. wintergreen, and hops, which are all ingredients that exist in root beer as we know it. So when he went back home, he kind of like altered it a little bit and he made his own formulation and it was sold at his pharmacy as a syrup and he would like give it to people there and he would mix it with soda water and sugar and yeast and people would drink it at the counter. So, and it like became a really big hit um, and like became really popular and people started kind of copying him. Um, So another interesting fact is that he was a teetotaler so interesting yeah so um and i'm not sure where this fits in the timeline but he knew the the founder of temple university so and his name is um russell conwell was the founder of temple university and he was also um a teetotaler and part of the he was like you know part of the temperance movement and he was a minister and he kind of worked with Charles to create this drink that would temper the drinking of Pennsylvania miners. So, and then Charles wanted to call the drink root tea, but the Temple University guy convinced him to call it root beer because to be more acceptable to like miners and stuff. Wait, that's um, really interesting. Can I ask mm-hmm. you a question? I know I don't know if you know this, but when he was adding yeast to it in order to serve it, was it fermenting at all? And did it have Yeah. But I like a little that, bit like what, like kombucha or something like that? Yeah, because I think that's why like root beer has the like foamy. It's like, mm. you know, when you pour it, it's like has like a heavy layer of white foam. So, anyway, so this he like debuted at like um at like a centennial exhibition in Pennsylvania. And anyway, so this was all like in, I guess around the late 1800s, he was really gaining popularity for this. And then in the early 1900s, he came up with the candy, the Rupert Barrel candy. Um, Hmm. So hold on. So the candy (laughs) predates like mass production of root beer by like giant soda corporations. Yeah. Yeah. And, And then I even kind of looked a little bit into like, and then like A and W and like um, like mugs and like all these other root beer companies kind of followed. A and W was um, founded in Lodi. Ah, yeah, nice. and he so like in a like a little stand in Lodi, California, and he is the one. Um, his trademark is he served his root beer in frosty glass mugs. So. That's kind of interesting. And now, but the thing is, like, apparently there's this whole, there is a really, um, I found this article uh, about, it was on something called, like, thingsyoudontcareabout.com, and it was talking about Hire's root beer and how, like, even though it is the original root beer, like, it doesn't, it's not really manufactured anymore. And this article had, like, 300 comments on it about, like, people trying to find Hire's root beer because it's the best root beer. And I, I kind of like gained from the comments that it's less sweet. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have, it's not as sweet as other, um, like A&W and stuff. And then I learned that, so Hire's was um, eventually bought by um, the Dr. Pepper slash Snapple company, mm. which already owned A&W. So they kind of phased out hires but uh, according to the internet you can still find it in some places but it's it's really hard to find but it, it does this root beer being the original root beer does kind of have a cold following so you can capitalism you can, strikes again <laughs> yeah you can so as as i told this to mike and my husband he said leave it to some white guy to just add sugar to something <laughs> <laughs> he's not wrong He's not wrong. Uh, The $5,000 in 1867 would be $87,534 today. Okay. So So yeah, apparently that money, that money helped him manufacture and like kind of promote his his root beer. Okay. So root beer barrels to me make more sense if it's like an ancient candy and your option is like maple sugar poured on snow or like a root beer barrel. (laughs) 
You know, like, I feel like that's what you're saying. Like, it's like an old timey candy, like barely out of Little House on the Prairie times. No, it's like a cough drop. (laughs) It's medicinal. Right. Yeah. But that's how all the companies, the the soda companies started, right? There were all Mm -hmm. these different hucksters selling, quote unquote, medicinal things. Mm -hmm. Um, That uh, there's a really good book that I can't remember the name of about this one particular guy who then bought up all the radio stations and border towns in Mexico. I'll try to find it, put it in our bookshop because I read it a couple of years ago. But that was a big that was a big thing. But you know what else is really interesting about that story to me, given all of our other conversations, is that it's not only like a white person appropriating some kind of indigenous knowledge or indigenous, you know, science, right? Like an indigenous approach to um, healing or something like that. It's also the the addition of sugar, like sugar itself and the slave trade around Mm -hmm. sugar and the global sort of like movements of sugar as a crop is like a really violent and horrifying history as well. So it's like, you know, there's like a version mm-hmm. of the story that's like, oh, a man, you know, saves this money and runs some medicine thing doing this people. And then there's like all of the things, the like global structures of violence and exploitation that had to take place in order for that to happen. Yeah. It's like, man, well, that's fascinating yeah. to me. Yeah. There was also like a PS where it was later on, Charles Hires became very interested in vanilla so he started traveling to other countries to like learn about vanilla and kind of. Oh yeah. You know, so and that's a whole other exploitative nightmare exactly. route. So Stacy likes Rupert barrels, which means. <laughs> I feel like we might have to send Emily some root beer barrels and have her try them live on a podcast. You might like them. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. But also this made me think of, um, we had that listener who said she thinks Anna Martin is pulling from her own references as a child, which uh-huh. I think is when, in regards to candy, it also makes sense because she's talking about Stacy also says I kill for a Tootsie Pop, uh-huh. which is, you know, kind of like a fifties, sixties, that commercial of like with Belle and everything. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, Reaper Brows would also fit in with more old-fashioned candy. But I am yeah. going to do in the future with the Claudia book um, a deep dive into 80s candies. Yes. Yes. I went down that road again and it was very that was it was pretty fun. So you you live on Stay that tuned. road, Anne. You don't you what? don't have to go down that road. You live on that road. Your house is on that road. You don't this ever leave true. that road. <laughs> I've never left. Yeah. I haven't moved. I'm, I'm yeah. just <laughs> sitting. I'm very comfortable where I am. Yeah, <laughs> eating your everlasting gobstoppers and your sweet yeah. tarts. Yeah, what a deep cut. <laughs> deep cut. What? What um, was there? Claudia candy in this book? There wasn't. Um, I mean, besides all the candy that Stacy mentions in the beginning of the book, Claudia, um, she mentions. I think it's gummy bears and Fritos. Mm. I feel like Fritos have gotten a lot of mentions in the last few books. Like it's shifted yeah. from Doritos to Fritos. Absolutely. Interesting. Um, yeah. What about your tallies as me? Um, I'll get to tallies in one second. I There were just a couple things that happened in the book that I want to mention that I forgot about. One is we didn't talk at all about the Morbid of Destiny chapter where she invites all those children over for fresh lemonade, um, quote unquote, fresh oh, yeah. lemonade. And Christy realizes she's just a sad old lady that doesn't have any time. So I thought it was I... a very sad chapter. <laughs> I also, I got so sidetracked by the Cold War, I forgot to talk about that, that like, what, and it's something I've been talking around before, but that like, the the crime that she's committing that like, socially, that lends her to being labeled mm-hmm. as a witch is living alone and like being old. And this is like, mm-hmm. a, another way in which kind of gender um, and social norms and expectations yeah. sort of Should circumscribe relations. Should we start a GoFundMe for Morbid Destiny? Morbid Destiny is rich. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> this is true. She doesn't next to She doesn't need to go yeah. find me. She just needs some companionship. She just needs some people to come over and drink her frozen lemonade occasionally. Anyway, yeah, that was a sad chapter. Um and then just two other very BSC things. Um one, we have another fake musical in this book. 
um, mad about mm-hmm. Millie that they're going to go see uh, when she gets back into town. And so I and I wanted to know, you know, if Paris magic is like sort of a bastardized Les Mis mixed with something else, it, is this a thoroughly modern Millie and what would it be mixed with? I don't know. I don't think, I feel like we didn't get enough information on the musical. Yeah. We, we are only we going have by the title. name. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, and then I just had this revelation after, you know, 34 years of reading these books. Um, Stacy's pretty mad at Howie Johnson in these books because he's, you know, taken her to a bunch of dances, but now he's hanging out with Dorianne Wallingford. And his name is Howie Johnson. And Howie is short for Howard. And there's a character named Howard Johnson in the Babysitter's Club. And how did I never notice this? And did you guys ever notice this? I don't no. know what Howard Johnson is. And <laughs> it's it's a restaurant slash hotel. Does it yeah. exist? Still? Yeah, they still exist. Yeah. I'm kind of <laughs> like, I mean, I feel like now you see them more. There used to be one in Times Square. Um, and I feel like now it exists more just like on the side of the freeway type of situation. Um but I'm, I mean, it's very possible that Anna Martin took the name from Howard Johnson. That makes sense. It's, but really funny. So it's now owned by Wyndham, but it was the largest restaurant mm-hmm. chain in the U.S. throughout the 60s and 70s with more than a thousand combined company owned and franchised outlets. Oh, wow. I thought it was a hotel, too. It's just a restaurant. Oh, it started as a restaurant and then it became a hotel. Okay. Uh, oh, boy. Anyway. Tallies. Uh, Stacy's uh, somewhere in the middle. We get it. One sophisticated for her and Claudia, one shy for Marianne. Dawn is still an individual and one exotic. I believe she says Claudia is exotic as ever as she's looking at her, which is a little bit of a, a little bit of a bummer, I think. Wait, we got a <laughs> too many sen- exotics. We got a sensitive for Marianne too. She says it. I only remember because she says it in an interesting parenthetical. She says she's really sensitive. She's a good person to talk about things with. Oh, you're right. I missed which I thought was an interesting kind of qualifier of like what sensitive is, mm-hmm. and like because it's totally opposite to the way that Logan uses it to like sort of shame Marianne in Logan yeah. likes Marianne, and I thought that was like kind of sweet, sweet to come coming from Stacey. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Even so if it's still a trope. Yeah. So sophisticated remains um, and shy remain our most popular. So shy at 19, sophisticated at 17, um, followed closely by bossy for Christy at 16. Babyish is at 14, but does appear to be fading out. Um, sensitive seven, exotic four, individual three. Um, and no specific mentions of Dawn liking health food in this book. That makes sense mm-hmm. since Stacy's also not eating junk food. Right. Mm-hmm. So Stacy's not going to pull that out as a personality trait in the same way. What was everyone's favorite line? Um, interestingly, mine was when Chrissy was talking about soda, which ties back to root beer. Was, it was mine too. <laughs> mine <Yeah>. too. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there's like three different, all three versions yeah. of it I thought were hilarious. <laughs> she says... By gluteum exorbitate. Yes. And then Claudia says gluteus exorbitance. That was my favorite. <laughs> and what's the other one? On. It's on the next page. Stacy says, we better go back upstairs. Christy's waiting to be big gluteum exorbitated. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My favorite was big gluteum exorbitate by far. Yeah. Okay. Um, but we could do the past tense if you want. I'm fine with either. I liked gluteus exorbitance. <laughs> Well, which one should we get? And you're you're the tiebreaker. <laughs> oh, jeez, they're both so good. So, do you think that Claudia is just mispronouncing what Christy said? Yes, is that what it is? <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. But what so not Christy only does she spell thing things either. wrong, she just can't say them correctly either. Yeah, I don't know that what Christy said is correct. <laughs> right, yeah, I didn't look it up. Did, oh wait, can someone as me? Can you please look it up? Yeah, I don't know why I'm the person that knows how to use Google on this podcast, everybody, but apparently I am. It's because um, you're Christy. Okay. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. Christy I'm just an alternate officer, so <laughs> it's only my job if you're not here. Yeah, I just have my own phone line. That's why I'm my yeah. The only things that come up for Big Ludium Exforbinate are goodbye, Stacey, goodbye. 
<laughs> so what about gluteus exorbitans? <laughs> well, those are words. <laughs> those are real words. <laughs> um, um, I vote we use the past tense. Okay. 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 The gluteum exorbitans. Okay, yeah, that's fucking hilarious. <laughs> there was one um, uh, in tallies that I forgot to mention. There was one SJW thing where um, Stacy oh, yeah. is describing Claudia in the beginning, and she says that Claudia is Japanese American, and she says, "I'm just American," which yeah. um, props up the idea that the default is a white person. Um, I'm There's, sure Stacy. There was one more that, that I noticed. Also, what did you notice? Um, Stacy calls someone a slave driver. Ooh, yes. When they're talking I about working. That. Yeah. Um, I don't, I didn't have the page, but she was like, I can't remember if she was saying someone was being a slave driver, organizing some kind of work or saying like, I can't remember if she used it as a noun or as a verb, but mm-hmm. she, she used it. Between Stacy yeah. liking root beer barrels, saying she's American and slave driver. I don't, dude. Looking kind of yeah. sketchy for Stacy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That New York savviness run. doesn't extend to yeah. her. <laughs> no. So, pizza toast. Everyone's thinking right now, listeners. Okay, I, I don't know. You guys can tell me how to boil this down. Um, I really loved chapter eight. To me, this was like a bottle episode of your favorite sitcom. It was just all of them talking about planning the yard sale and they were all this is when Don's doing the headstand and they were all super being themselves and they were like very much 13 year olds like excited about this project that they were working on together um and I just thought it was like masterfully done but I don't know what the pizza toast is to that other than them together it's not a very good pizza toast idea but I but I liked it yeah it's like I guess you want a pizza toast to like friendship <laughs> Okay, what's your idea, Emily? (laughs) (laughs) We could pizza toast to the mural that the kids draw for Stacy of Stony Brook that looks nothing like Stony Brook. They do a diet soda toast in this one instead of a pizza toast. Should we pizza toast to diet soda toasts? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) that's foul, but fine. No, it's okay. Um, Have you guys ever gone on a peanut hunt? At a party. I don't know what that is. I'm just guessing from the names that you hunt for peanuts, but that's something that they do at the party. I completely missed that. Is that one of the activities at Stacy's going away party? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> okay, let's toast to the peanut <laughs> hunt. I can't yeah. even say it. <laughs> peanut hunt. Yeah, there peanut you go. Peanut hunt. Okay. Like, is it like a like a peanut in a shell or just like a singular peanut? Oh, I assumed in the shell. A singular peanut would be very hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But also, what about peanut allergies? One of these kids has that peanut allergy. No, no one has that in 1988. Okay, let's let's pizza toast to the peanut hunt. To the peanut hunt. Peanut to hunt. Peanut hunt. <laughs> so hard to say. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kit. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash Stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling dibly generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for.